Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. It also happens to be the title, uh, the, the, the company is also the subject of tonight's book review with Ian Mann. So it's all tied, all connected, all connected. If you ever thought the law was black and white and it was very, very simple of rights and absolute wrongs, well, you'd be absolutely wrong. It's what keeps lawyers in business, in business when two parties absolutely are convinced that they have the law on their side. They go head to head in a court or they go head to head in a legal forum and then somebody's got to make a decision as to who is least who is most right or who is right in their interpretation of the law. And last week we saw some very damning allegations being made at the Nugent Inquiry into SARS. Friday saw the suspended Commissioner Tomoyani, represented by the EFF chairman and lawyer Dalian Porfu, make a series of demands in relation to that inquiry. And today, Judge Newton dismissing all of the complaints and what the journalist with Scorpio at Daily Maverick, Paulie van Beek, described as a withering response. And Paulie, I wasn't listening to the words of what Judge Newton was saying I was busy at the time, but one could hear by the tone that it was indeed, as you put it, withering. Hi, Bruce. Yes, indeed. So, uh, retired Judge Robert Nugent described um, Mr. Mpofu and Mr. Mabuza's uh, document as a disgrace. It was loose on facts, that it was high on emotion, um, withdraws, uh, that it draws in- inferences without substantiating evidence, that it was littered with abuse, invective, made sinister suggestions, um, and that it tried to bait the media into reviving accusations of that old rogue unit that was the subject of a lot of debate, um, and ultimately that the Commission has pre- prejudged the case before them. Now, that Nugent didn't take kindly to these unsubstantiated uh, allegations, and then he refused five demands. Now, those five demands, and they, 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 they've as varied as they are numerous. The big one, I suppose, was that uh, Moyani wanted the Nugent Commission discontinued, and there was just absolutely no way um, that the judge was going to con- concede to that. No, absolutely not, and it's substantiated in law. So his argument was that a commission is not allowed to dissolve itself. It can also allow or be allowed to kick one of its advisors off a panel. And the reason for that is uh, a commission is uh, constituted and initiated by the president of a country. And as they serve an advisory role, they must make recommendations to the president. So it's not a court. It is not someone that should find um, necessarily adverse findings against someone or against a situation. It's supposed to make recommendations. Now, uh, the Judge Robert Nugent said that uh, this commission will also not dissolve itself and it will not kick off uh, Professor Michael Pact off its panel because they were both instituted and um, appointed by the president. Um, and, and here, I mean, also, Moyani was claiming that the, this, was, this process was procedurally unfair. It was unlawful. Now, 
Hold on a second. This is a presidential inquiry into whether SARS is functional or dysfunctional or not. As it happens, Tom Miani came into the firing line because of the way in which he'd managed the South African Revenue Services during his quite short stint there. Yes, exactly. And uh, Judge made it quite clear on Friday that when you are the boss of an institution, it is the nature of an inquiry that your management style and your decisions will be scrutinized. And if there are people who, or witnesses who bring forward any um, allegations and any evidence that you fail in your job, you will be a subject of investigation. But that does not mean that Riani is the subject of, of investigation or the focus of the committee. The Commission focuses on structures and governance and tax revenue collection in SARS and why ultimately it failed in two consecutive uh, financial years to reach its revenue targets. Yeah, and that is the crucial question, and that is what we are hoping that Judge Newton will be able to determine, spell out, and then the problems can be absolutely fixed. Um, Tomoyana's big problem here is that a lot of information is now in the public domain, which he would have preferred to not have in the public domain, and he's concerned that that could be used in any future legal proceedings that may or may not be brought against him. Yes, indeed. And there's actually in law um, nothing that you can do about it. It's, it's actually how it's supposed to happen. You have to have an investigation where there's a hawks or a commission of inquiry such as this do it. And then if this commission of inquiry receives any information that um, uh, suggests any prima facie criminology or criminality or suggests that a failure in management or a failure in, in, in any of the processes in charge, it must uh, report such matters usually to the Hawks or to the President, um, and uh, any action must follow from there. Now, Mr. Muyani is trying to say that he will be uh, doubly judged on, on when his disciplinary hearing and the Commission of Inquiry goes ahead. But that cannot be, the judge said, because the Commission of Inquiry is, as I said, a fact-finding commission that makes recommendations and a disciplinary hearing into him is based on very specific grounds and it's supposed to inquire um, whether he handled himself well in very specific situations. And one, it can flow from another. And I think that might be one of the problems that Mr. Moyani will have with this commission, that anything that, that comes out here, um, Mr. Ramaphosa's lawyers may as well be might well use in follow proceedings um, in the disciplinary hearing. Um, and then uh, there, this can't be cheap. And once you suspend it, I'm sure it's, he is suspended on full pay, I believe. But guys like Dali and Porfu don't give away their services for nothing. Um, and if this does go to the courts, as uh, Porfu suggested today, that his client was likely to go to court to overturn Judge Newton's decision to um, not disband this inquiry, um, that uh, the, the legal bills could pile up. And there's no indication that um, Moyan is going to get any state support on that. Yes, exactly. I asked SARS personally on Friday who is paying for the legal bills um, for the commission of inquiry and obviously for the disciplinary hearing of Mr. Muyani. And SARS told me that they have no idea who's paying for it, so it's clearly not them. Mr. Ramaphosa also said that he is not inclined to allow Mr. Muyani to use state resources to fight a case against the state. 
Um, so it seems at the moment that it might be a very costly bill if he if he decides to go to court. I suppose the question does come then as to whether or not you're being persecuted for the role you played in running a state entity and if you're still the de facto head of that state entity, whether or not it is reasonable for uh, a government to deny you the right to a legal defence based on the work you did on behalf of the state. Yes, indeed. So you cannot use the state resources to fight your case against the state when you were the one who made making decisions and, and in this instance, uh, allegedly using your position to fight old battles and to settle scores and to apparently allow SARS to be misused and make certain settlements that might not be totally in the interest of SARS. Forgive me for this one, slightly left of field here, but President Jacob Zuma's uh, succeeded in getting some state funding for his legal battles. Um, Isn't that exactly the same sort of scenario? Um, Well, I think there might be a a decision to make about that because when you look at SARS specifically, there's no precedent for that. There's no precedent for any commissioner who is fighting a battle against SARS itself for his or her um, uh, battles to be funded by the state. But with Mr. Zuma, we now know that in, it was in a time when Mr. Tabumbeki allowed that decision to be made. And that decision is questioned and it might, be, might turn out that a court says, no, it wasn't the right decision to make. Well, thanks to you, Pauli van Beek, the journalist with Scorpio at Daily Maverick. Just wrapping up today's activities, the Nugent Inquiry into the health of SARS. Joining us now, the Acting Commissioner at the SA Revenue Service, Mark Kingan, kicking off today's tax season. This is the new all-singing-all-dancing shortened version of tax season, Mark. And you've got a big, hairy, audacious goal of a record budget of 1.345 trillion rand to collect. How much have you got in already? <laughs> Quite a considerable amount. As I sit here tonight, uh, Bruce, I can't tell you the exact, but obviously it is quite a significant amount to collect. And on the other hand, a considerable amount of returns to collect in a shorter period, yes. So, sure. I mean, the thing is, if, if SARS has been denuded to the extent that we're led to believe it has been as a result of the Nugent Inquiry last week, and for those of us sitting on the outside watching the testimonies from your former colleagues, um, how are you going to meet this record target if uh, SARS is in a state of disrepair? Well, it's, it's by certain key focus areas and, and obviously focusing on non-compliance, ensuring that the teams that I do have are consolidated and focused specifically in terms of, for instance, the illicit economy as a broader scope, uh, ensuring that we've got a, a consolidated approach to serving and obviously enforcing in the large business sector and ensuring that we are dealing with that in a very structured way. Uh, that's how we're going to go about it. It's going to be a big elephant to eat, uh, but we are committed to do it to bite at a time. I mean, are you able, are you been, you've been in charge as the acting commissioner since March. Have you managed to restore a level of self-confidence within SARS that seemed to have disappeared? Look, Bruce, let's be frank that the, the discussions in, in before the commission last week, um, obviously staff are affected by that and you need to be aware of that. And, and it does affect the broader morale of the organisation. Uh, but I think we are making headway. Um, as I think I've indicated to you before, I'm engaging with staff, uh, internal staff, and obviously with the public, taxpaying public, uh, tax practitioner bodies to try and ensure uh, that we do instill that. But Bruce, it's about what we do and how we respond. 
when we make a mistake, I'm, I'm prepared to stand up and acknowledge that we made a mistake and, and take accountability for that. Uh, and we, we've made a significant number of changes for filing season. We are, we are trying to make it easier for clients because in some areas, like banking details is one, it has been problematic in previous years. We need to fix these things and make it easier for clients. And we believe we can do it together. I mean, you launched a new charter today which will hold taxpayers responsible for their side of the bargain when it comes to the the payment of taxes to the state. You must also then, on the other side of that, if this is a balance sheet of a charter, um, hold your own staff for your own organisation to account as well. 100%. So there are specific guidelines on timelines that we are to be held to account, and that's on the one side. And we want taxpayers to hold us to account in that. Interestingly enough, today... For the most part, I think we've been in line with the charter. Uh, it was a bit of a problem when I, I started the day off. I heard there were 800 people in the queue in Kriyanakum's office, and one starts worrying, well, <laughs> we start off the charter with a day with 800 people in the queue. But we have managed overall to service people effectively in terms of the timelines as set out in the charter. But, Bruce, we are going to, in some times, at some point in time, fail the charter. Sure. And people need to be aware that there's a methodology or a method for them to escalate such complaints and that's what we try to say we, we we don't believe in every case we're going to measure up to the charter but it's aspirational as well um, and we want to, to to measure up to that uh, going forward Mark Kingan, the acting SARS commissioner, thanks for chatting to us this evening. Mark Kingan on the line to us from Pretoria, uh, where he's feverishly beginning the shortened tax season. It's uh, a much shorter period now, and up to you as a taxpayer to make sure that you are compliant. Far too often, SARS has found in the past that there's this early burst of enthusiasm as those people who want to get their tax refunds, people who believe they do a tax refund, they get their papers in order really quickly and they file everything. And then there's this dead period, and then the last week before um, this extended tax period, there's this mad panic from the the balance of people who choose to comply um, who then cause another spike and that they're hoping to do is to consolidate it all and within a much shorter period of time get uh, everybody up and running and and that way you also improve collections and get money into the bank a lot more quickly The Money Show The Markets for us, Busters with the old Mutual Investment Group, he's tonight's market commentator. At least it's not as frosty and frigid on the markets as it is um, in Bethlehem tomorrow. Bethlehem, I think, is going to be South Africa's coldest spot tomorrow. Uh, it's been vied for by Kimberley and Bloemfontein, each minus seven tomorrow morning. Valcom minus six. And Bethlehem is going to a horrible minus eight. Um, so wherever you, if you plan to go heading through the free state tomorrow, wait till lunchtime. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be miserable in the free state. At least the markets, which are frigid, aren't frozen. Well, it's close, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good evening. I think the the market today down close to percent. Um, you know, this, the trade war in the global trade war starting to take its toll. We can see the the currency being adjusted, the rand close to 30.90, emerging market global currencies all under pressure. Um, And I think we're close to those levels, Bruce, here to date, the market um, down close to 5%. No, and and that's the point. Year to date, um, it's down about 5%. But year on year we're still in positive territory. So if you go back to this day 12 months ago, it all depends on your starting point, which is why I've got real issue with with picking your starting date. If you choose to do it from the beginning of the year, then you've got a negative picture. If you choose to do it year on year, actually we're up about 10%. 
Yes, close to 10%, but I think, you know, that's coming down fast, Bruce. Yeah. If you look at the returns over the last two years or even three years, the Orchi Index um, has produced close to, to 7% um, over three years. 7% and per year over three years. So just beating inflation um, and barely beating cash in the bank. Um, and here's the problem with cash in the bank is that, you know, we, we don't ever invest in stock markets. Once we take it out of stock markets and put it into a, a deposit in the bank, and depending on how much cash we've got, you start paying tax on that cash mm-hmm. um, and you, you start getting, you know, you start vying for that. So money under the mon- money in the bank has actually been as good, if not better, yeah. perhaps in some cases than, than markets, which makes your job that much harder. Yes, it does, Bruce. I think, you know, if you look at at money in the bank, it's it's risk-free. So, you know, if, if a client's investing in the stock market in any one of our funds, they expect a, a, a risk-adjusted return. Um, and if you look at a risk-free rate of close to 5%, um, you're looking at on average between 11 and 12% that you expect over and above what you're getting. So over the last three years, all share index has done 7%. So, you know, it's tough times in the market out there. And I think this year... Is, is is a number of things happening against clients is that inflation is, is, is higher and stock markets are going back, but also we see record fuel prices. Uh, we hear that food prices are going out and, you know, the, the age-old, you know, um, education and mm. medical costs mm. way above inflation. So clients actually taking strain this year. Well, they certainly are. Um, we're all feeling it. And it, it's deeply frustrating when you look at your investment portfolio, whether it be a retirement annuity, some kind of pension plan or a unit trust, or if you've got an ETF portfolio, whatever it might be. And the line is sort of flat. I mean, if you were lying in intensive care and you had a graph like that on the, uh, on the machine next to you, they'd wheel you into the mortuary. Yes, definitely, Blue. So I think the, the most scary part is that you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen with this global trade war. Um, U.S. interest rates are going up. Um, emerging market currencies are under pressure. We could be in for, for even more pressure in the stock markets in the coming months. Now, here's the, the issue here. Yes, the trade war is real. And yes, tariffs are going up on products. And there's this tit-for-tat increasing of tariffs or on anything from motor cars and products and all that sort of stuff. It's happening. Um, and that's having a negative impact on emerging market currencies. I get that. However, South Africa's fundamentals, South Africa's investability, we're not helping ourselves very much at all. We've got big uncertainty on land, big uncertainty on mining, big uncertainty on, on national health insurance. Um, we, we are scoring a lot of own goals despite all of these global negatives. We need to help ourselves before anybody else can help us, surely. Yes, definitely, Bruce. I think, you know, you, you mentioned a few of the negatives. I think couple that with, with rising inflation, cost push, push inflation, um, the stuff yeah. you saw about cost push inflation. Sorry to interrupt, but it's the stuff we have no control over. Yeah. So our rates and taxes, the fuel prices, the taxes, the levies, <laughs> all of these things which we can't opt out of because they're compulsory purchases, if you like, that are simply rising at a cost above inflation. Yes, definitely. And you know those have second round effects. I mean, the fuel prices and all of these increases that we're seeing, you know, have second round effects. We see it feeding into food and and the like. So you know, it's a ripple effect. And once that starts taking effect you know we see it already in the gdp numbers the consumers under pressure and and you know these are exacerbating the overall numbers couple that with the stock market and these uncertainties around trade war 
you know, we could be in for a very tough year. Yet, it's not all doom and gloom, for example, in the banking sector. Yes, banking shares are down about 10, 15% so far this year. But Nedbank outperformed today. Capitec, um, it's had a settlement with Summit Financial Partners who've been like a mosquito at them over a financial product that they had. Uh, Capitec up 2%, 888 rand. Nice and strong on the day. Some of the resources doing okay. Some of our industrials doing okay as well. Yes. Um, you know, we, we've seen this rebound in a number of shares where valuations have just come, come too low and some foreign buying into that, also local funds buying into some of these. I'll caution around the banks in that, you know, banks are basically a function of the economy. If the economy is doing well, banks will do, tend to do well. If the economy is under pressure, I mean, banks banks loan into the market, into consumers and corporates and um, that those second round effects will will take place in the banks as well, and once those come into play, you know, banking earnings will come under pressure. You see the self fulfilling prophecy happening. It was happening. We came out of December, and people, South Africans generally were walking on air. On honest South Africans were walking on air, and it felt like um, it was this new dawn and this new beginning. And it's just we we feel like now we've got our feet stuck in you know, Ilovo golden syrup, and every time you put your foot down, there's this. And you can't run and move as fast and as nimbly as you thought you would. 2018 was supposed to be a great year. And yeah. now, unfortunately, we're dealing with the consequences of a decade's worth of economic mismanagement. Yes. You know, reality always sets in at some point or the other. You know, we have to face the fact that we need to put, put in the building blocks. We haven't invested in infrastructure. We haven't invested in education. We haven't invested in the building blocks for economic growth. And that won't turn around in a year. You know, it, it takes a while. South Africa has great, great potential, but it's going to take a few years to realize those potential. Well, Feroz Basa, thank you very much. Which is the biggest company in the world? A state-owned enterprise. Um, it is not an American company. It's certainly not a South African state-owned enterprise. Um, Saudi Aramco. Aramco, absolutely. What does Aramco stand for? Come on, you'd think you know everything. Arabian oil company. Close. Not bad. Not bad at all. Founded in 1933, when it was first founded, was the California Arabian Standard Oil Company. Uh, today, 100% owned by the Saudi government. Ar- uh, is it Aramco? Um, reflects its heritage. It was called the California Arabian Standard Oil Company and then changed to the Arabian American Oil Company, Aramco. Um, estimated to be worth in the region of $20 trillion U.S. dollars which is huge. It's 20 times as valuable then as the world's most listed company, the the most valuable listed company, which is Apple. Um, And one of the world's biggest, most profitable companies, the subject of Ian Mann's book review, 50 minutes from now, called Saudi Inc. Massively controversial. They're going for an IPO, as a couple of you do mention. Uh, Well done on my SMS line this evening. Um, And so lots of you pointing out that out this evening, saying there is something going on. Uh, But Aramco says Zahir Shivani and Dani Smith and others pointing out to me this evening that yes, Saudi Aramco going for an IPO but it is quite controversial. It is quite controversial and Ian Mann can explain it all. The book is called Saudi Inc and we'll talk all about oil. Of course these guys have got the monopoly on global oil via the cartel, the OPEC cartel, which is one of the reasons why you're going to be paying another 26 cents a litre on petrol next week because the oil price remains elevated, the high $70 level, the weakening currency as Feroz has just so eloquently explained doesn't help us one little bit. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. 
William Bird, Sani Bai, we'll talk to him in just a second about the uh, new DST, the new cha- news channel coming onto DSTV. There's something like 20 bidders for the uh, license, which is held currently by the successor to ANN7, um, uh, the Afro Worldview, it's called, and it's going to be closing down at the end of August. Uh, um, Zwadanele Mainyi maintains that he's in the best position. He's got 500 people. He's got all the equipment. He's got the gear. He's got everything. It'll be irresponsible for him not to uh, get this particular contract. But, um, yeah, he's got some very fierce competition. We're going to find out all about that in just a little bit. You know what we haven't done for a long time is looked at art investment. It's time to revisit science of the art investment. Julie Miller is an art investment expert from the Art Investment Institute at the Mall of Africa. We're going to be looking at art, what sells, what buys, what doesn't move and what makes a particular piece of art valuable. Then Andy Rice with Heroes and Zeros. Remember last week how nice he was? He's sharpening his claws once again with a couple of zeros on The Money Show. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show on this marvellous Monday night. It's 20 minutes to 7 o'clock. Well, last week we saw the announcement from the former Gupta newspaper Afro Voice that it was closing its doors, telling staff to not come to work for the month of July, for which they would be paid. Um, Some desperate people, of course, working for their publication, worried that they'll never be hired again in the world of uh, mainstream media. Well, the TV channel, formerly known as ANN7, now Afro World View, loses access to DSTV to the bouquet in August and it's given no indication as to whether or not it's got another carrier. I've just seen a comment from Zwanele Mani, the now owner of the of the channel, Afro Worldview, that it will simply be right. And they've now comply with the Broadcasting Complaints Commission and all of its T's and C's. And really, they should just keep the license and carry on as if nothing has ever gone wrong. In the meantime, the rumor mill in the world of media is doing the rounds about consortia pitching to replace it on DSTV. There have been 60 expressions of interest and actually 24 or former formal proposals. Uh, William Bird is directed media monitoring Africa. You want the short lists of potential candidates here, William, to be made public. Tell me why. Hi, good evening, Bruce. Yes, it's critical that they're made public. I think that we've seen, certainly from the fiasco around ANN Seven, and certainly given the power and importance of this announcement of another new news channel, that not only are they made public in terms of uh, who the shortlist is, but we need to know uh, a bit more about each of the consortium. We need to know who their shareholders are and we need to know what their offering is. So we're not asking for confidential information, but we are asking that the information that is being put before multi-choice is made public. Because if it isn't, how on earth are we to have any level of trust in multi-choice that they've made a better decision than they did last time? How are we uh, meant to trust on what basis the, the the license is given. It's critical because it's about news that these things are made public. Now, the 24 formal proposals which have been pitched to multi-choice, at what point, I mean, do you want to see the final 10? Do you want to see the final five, the final three? What's a shortlist in your mind? Well, as I understand it, they've been shortlisted. So that shortlist that they've uh, already made, they can make public. Otherwise, if they've got those 24 proposals, what on earth is stopping them from making those 24 public? Let people go through, check that the, the, that the shareholders are there, that they say who they say they are, all of those kinds of things. This, this is part of good governance. And, and, and why this is important is for the following reason. is As things stand now, right, there's no obligation on multi-choice to carry... Uh, SABC's news channel. So going forward, there's nothing to say to, the, to stop them from just dropping that. They have to carry SABC 1, 2 and 3, 
but nothing about news. Now, the moment you say that they're not obligated to carry it, we have to say as members of the public, well, look, there have to be ways and checks and balances that even if these things aren't part of your formal license conditions, that because it's a news channel, because we're interested in news diversity and making sure that the public have it, we need to see who those people are because they they, 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 they dominate the market. You know, they have a monopoly on that on that service and it's essential because of that that we have every right, I believe, to see who those people are. What about the people who are involved in these pitches? And I, I mentioned the media rumour mill and it's a case of, oh, this one and this one are part of this consortium, this one and this one are part of that consortium, this one and that one and this one are part of another consortium and big names yep. from the world of media are being sort of bandied about town as being parts of these consortia. Their right to privacy, um, with particularly with their current employer, just in case this doesn't work out for them, um, and also if they ever decide they want a job on the new channel because many of these are media people they might be excluded because they were part of an enemy camp at at what point is it reasonable and not reasonable to publish these things so look we're not asking for details of every potential employee what we are saying is is we want to know what their shareholder structure is and who those people are Uh, you know in the same way that that stuff would have to be made available in any normal company process it's essential that they make that process clear now because the danger of this is that what we're finding now is that there's just rumours swirling, you know, and people, because multi-choice is not putting out information, the media and everyone else is just making up stuff as they go along uh, or working on whatever kind of things they're hearing through back backdoor uh, operations. So there's what we're encouraging is, in fact, an undermining of trust in the process. We're encouraging this idea that maybe something dodgy is going on, when, in fact, there may well not be, but if there is... We need to know about it now so that those people are discouraged from getting that license. Um, is it still lucrative, financially lucrative, in, uh, to pitch for one of these licenses? Does uh, MultiChoice continue paying a subsidy as it has to ANN7, Afro Worldview, uh, ever since it launched on the DSTV bouquet? Well, look, I mean, that's their model. It's how ENCA broadly survives. It's uh, one of the things that makes sure that Channel 404 SABC survives, so yeah, for, for the people that are applying, it's it's certainly meant to be. And hopefully if they can bring something new and diverse to uh, to people, then it, there's, there's no reason why it shouldn't be uh, financially viable, certainly for them. For multi-choice, well, of course, that's another story. You know, I mean, they, their whole model and their world's being turned upside down now anyway. But I think one of the things that they're looking at is making sure that they offer a far more comprehensive uh, news news diet, I guess, and so putting on another channel, I think, is a good thing. And we should applaud them for that. You know, it's not like we're saying they shouldn't be doing this. I think that what the position is, is to say that, that this is a great idea. Add a new channel, but be transparent about it. Otherwise, how on earth do you think we should trust you from doing things differently to what's happened in the past? What uh, have you had any assurances at all from uh, from MultiChoice that they, they will or won't uh, be making available the information that you seek? Well, you know, I mean, they've just been kind of hedging their bets about it and saying that uh, media shouldn't speculate. But I guess the the, the short answer to that is is the media can and only will it speculate unless you put quality information out there. So we will be calling on them to do this formally. We'll be sending them a formal letter making sure that they understand the request and the basis on which we're making it. And if they don't, well, then we'll 
uh, look at petitioning the, the regulator to change their license conditions so that they can't do this kind of thing in the dark. So what are the time frames here? I mean, we got a Afro worldview which should come to an end as things stand at the end of August. You're not going to have any new news provider being ready on the 1st of September to pick, pick up the baton and, and carry on running. No, but look, depending on who the, 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 the candidates are, I imagine that one of the things they're going to be trying to entice them with is how soon they could get things up and running. And from what we can gather, there are a number of very good potential uh, candidates who put in their bids, so we've got every reason to think that that should be in early uh, 2019. You, you mentioned before the elections, I'm sure. Yeah, well, it has to be before the elections, otherwise um, the, the timing will be diabolical. In, in the world of Netflix and streaming, you alluded to it earlier, does this stuff matter anymore? It does, you know, because and the, and the evidence around the world still supports this, is that in as much as you, uh, people will then go and, and choose whatever they like from whatever platform they like, people still need to be informed and they need reliable means to, to get that information. It's the same reason they tune into this kind of program. So that sort of thing isn't going to necessarily change. The way they consume it might shift around and the offerings will certainly shift, so it's unlikely to be that you get the same standard uh, you know, that, that you scheduled viewing, they call it, where you sit down and watch the news at a particular time. People will get it through different means. But the news, I think, nowadays is even more critical uh, than before, precisely because there's so much information. We rely on quality journalists and media to give us accurate information and stuff that we can use and rely on to keep our country going. Should we be worried about the SABC? I just saw a story over the weekend. Victor Rambao, one of the SABC board members, appointed, I think, eight months ago for a five-year period, has resigned. The SABC board now down to eight members, four empty places. Is this more of the same? Are we are we, are we heading down a, a rocky path here? No, look, it is a worry that they that they four members down. But certainly if you look at the reasons that have been given for those four uh, you know, some people actually resigning on a matter of principle because they said they would if they were appointed uh, to a senior position within the ANC. I mean, that's pretty unusual for any uh, politically aligned person to do that sort of thing. So uh, there's no reason, certainly, that we're aware of uh, as to as to the board. What we did see today, however, was the SABC presenting to the Commission of Inquiry and, and saying that they needed more coverage on the SABC uh, in the run-up to elections and a complete failure, it would seem, for them to take any responsibility for the crises that the SABC has found itself in, which, of course, they're the major um, people involved in, in making sure that the SABC was in deep crisis. Mm. Ah, it's interesting, it's interesting times indeed. William Byrd, Director of Media Monitoring Africa. Yep, shortlist being compiled um, of the candidates to participate in uh, this new TV channel, whatever it'll be called, whoever is behind it. Um, yeah, and the world is changing and changing really fast, but news remains an absolutely pivotal part of your daily media consumption and um, the multi-choice is committed to issuing a new license whether it be to the owners and the owners of afro worldview whether or not they will crack the nod or whether it be one of a multiple uh, list of options with some pretty famous names if you do your googling um being at the forefront or at least some part of those applications the money show stock pick monday Peter Armitage is the chief executive of Anchor Capital with Stockpick Monday this evening. You've got a utility, you've got a new listing and a company that requires uh, public excitement, I suppose, in order to do well. So that's three adventurous picks, Peter Armitage. Let's start with the utility in Vodacom. 
Yeah, hi, Bruce. Um, Vodacom, I think to put it in context, the share price has come down from 180 rand to 120 rand. Steinhoff has come down from Steinhoff has come down from 77 rand to 1 rand 27. That's not a reason to buy it, is it? And and Steinhoff <laughs> isn't cheap at above 1 rand, while Vodacom <laughs> is. Okay, got you. So we haven't been invested in Vodacom for quite some time, but everything's got a value. Uh, they announced a B deal. There's been quite a lot of noise in the telco sector. And we just think it's got down to a price level at which uh, it's, it's, it makes for quite an attractive opportunity. The key metrics about a forward 12 multiple, 12 PE multiple, and close to an 8% forward dividend yield. So we think the market's probably overreacted to their B deal. Uh, but now, you know, great cash flow generator um, trading at a very attractive value. Now, Old Mutual is interesting because it was listed in London, very expensive cost structure, came back to South Africa last week, lots of razzmatazz listed on the JSE on uh, Tuesday last week, and ever since then the share price has been in full-blown retreat. Why do you like Old Mutual in a market that's uncertain as to where to price it? Well, I think the – so you've got to remember that they're effectively split into two, into Old Mutual, which is now an SA-focused business, and Quilta, which is the UK operation. So we think there's been quite a lot of technical selling. And what that means is that there's investors in the UK who are now forced to sell out of Old Mutual because um, it's out of their index and it's also you know, purely an emerging market company. So we think there's some temporary pressure put on it. And boy, there has been a rotation out of SA Inc. shares. But um, you know, we think Old Mutual, if you stack it up against Sunlum, uh, looks very cheap. And again, we think this this... Well, this could be one that's trading at about forward seven percent plus dividend yield. Sure. So some you know, some good value equations arising. No, but but yeah, the, so what's interesting about what you're saying is it's less about the share price that you're paying. It's about the sort of dividend that you can expect to get, which is more than you get for cash in the bank, and it's more tax efficient. Uh, and dividends, of course, are the things that really make you money in investments over a long period of time. You buy it cheaply at a high dividend yield, you score over the longer term. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> insurance companies, the earnings are quite fuzzy. So people place uh, quite a lot of importance on uh, on the dividend yield. That's the cash you get out, as as they say. Um, and it'll be trading at a much higher dividend yield than, than a Sunlum. There is still some uncertainty in the market with the unbundling. Um, analysts are battling to get a proper handle on it. And I think that's why some people are staying away. But we've done our work and... Uh, you know, we, we, we think that the value is there. And Soho Sun, which is an interesting one, hotel rooms aren't particularly in demand at the moment. Neither is putting money on a casino table. What's attractive about this one? So Soho is a bit of a, um, a kind of corporate breakup story as well. They've announced that they're going to unbundle all their properties into a separate business, into a company called Hospitality. And effectively what you'll be left with is a property um, of a, <coughs> the share price is currently 20 rand. We think the properties are worth around 15 rand a share, and we think the gaming and hotel operations are worth 10 rand a share. So we think when they do that, the market will be forced to put appropriate values on the two different parts, and you add them up together, we think it's 25, 30% upside. There is a risk if the economy doesn't come through. Obviously, gaming companies and hotels can uh, you know, need that, need economic growth to grow their earnings meaningfully. But if, you know, if the SA Inc. story comes through, uh, they're highly leveraged from an operating point of view. Margins can pick up, and you, don't, you only need a small increase in turnover to increase the profits quite easily.
Give me an up, um, upbeat perspective on SA Inc. You've said if the SA Inc. picture comes through, um, there, there's a lot of doom and gloom about at the moment. Are you seeing signs that these these uh, SA Inc. companies are finally going to come through? Bruce, we, we're still waiting for uh, hard signals. Um, we've been doing some work, and we reckon that the key thing to watch is vehicle sales numbers. We are getting some news from the banks that they're opening the taps a bit in terms of lending. Um, so it's, uh, we're disappointed. We would have hoped to have seen the signs come through quicker. Sure. Um, but, you know, we're in a significantly better place than we, we, we were a year ago, and a lot of these share prices are standing at the same level. So uh, we watch and hope. But, uh, you know, I think the, the key risk to it is the currency and, and interest rates uh, coming under pressure. But on balance of probabilities, we, we remain positive. Peter Armitage, Chief Executive at Anchor Capital. Three picks for you this evening. Vodacom, Old Mutual and Tsoho Sun on the breakup into hospitality, the property owner and the gaming and hotels business. Um, and in that, he says there's some upside as well. Peter Armitage, Chief Executive at Anchor Capital. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. On this Monday evening, Stuart Theobald, the latest from Steinhoff, Ian Mann from Gateway's Business Consultants on Aramco. It's a Saudi Arabian state-owned enterprise that's doing brilliantly and could go for IPO. Imagine if we had state-owned enterprises that were in a fit state to be listed on a market anywhere in the world. And then Zwei Bala, musician, he focuses his attention and his passions on choral music nowadays, but he's had a massively diverse uh, music career, including launching of TKZ all the way back in 1997. There were game changers in South Africa's quite a scene. We'll find out tonight what Zwei Bala thinks of money and how he looks after it, how he treats it and how he lets it treat him. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. Occasionally you see a company issuing its results and it goes on to the Stock Exchange News Service and it says if you want to see our results, go to our website. And I suppose technically there's nothing wrong with it. It's probably within the JSE's rules. The problem, though, is that if the company ever does disappear off the face of the earth and its website disappears, well, then so do the results. You don't have the history that the Stock Exchange News Service preserves. Anyway, Steinhoff did release results via their website on Friday um, and they made awful reading. We reflect on those on Friday evening. Unaudited results revealing the firm is technically bankrupt. It's losing money hand over fist. But it does believe that if things go its way, it can make a go of it. Stuart Theobald at the weekend uh, had a look at a chance to mull over those results. Stuart is a financial analyst and chairman at Intellidex on the line to us from London this evening. You point out in your business day column today, Stuart Theobald, that it's time for capitalism's undertakers to come in. Who are these people, these undertakers of capitalism? Capitalism. <laughs> there, there is a, a business model about buying distressed assets and trying to wring as much value out of them. Uh, and uh, you know, they they they're firms that uh, usually include alongside private equity. Although there's many different styles of private equity. One style is to buy companies that are in distress and attempt to either turn them around or essentially sell up all the assets and try and realize some value for shareholders. Uh, you know, I think in the case of Steinhoff, you've got a company that has been 
severely, severely wounded, uh, a reputation in tatters, uh, and uh, really a difficult case to see for it to recover on its own. So, you know, you've got a company that has got problems at an operating level, just being able to do business profitably because its customers and its suppliers are concerned that they might not ever see the money again if they uh, do business with Steinoff. And that means you need a, a bigger business with a balance sheet to come in, take it over, try and restore some uh, normal operating procedures in operating businesses and sell assets and try and reduce the company down to something that works uh, and has some sort of sustainable future. If you're a supplier to any style of subsidiary right now, you're sort of saying cash on demand as you deliver your supply or your product. If you are a customer and they say, please, could you pay a deposit on the delivery of your new dining room table six weeks from now? You say, no, don't be silly. I'm not going to pay you a deposit. Are you crazy? Tell you what, you deliver and then we'll talk about payment. Um, and, and that's yeah. ultimately what leads to the cash flow crunch that we're seeing in Steinhoff and its subsidiaries right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you'll know from, say, uh, distressed, banks, for instance, one of the ways to solve that distress and to restore market confidence is to get a bigger company to take it over. So a company with a much bigger balance sheet that we don't have any concerns over. Uh, and that immediately changes the prospect. So you you can restore the trust of suppliers and the trust of uh, customers fairly quickly. And it's really the only viable way to do that. You To try and trade yourself into a situation where trust comes back uh, is really not feasible. Uh, Steinhoff, relative to its competitors, uh, has a much tougher job on its hands, much more expensive to operate because its working capital is going to be costing it a great deal of money at the moment. And we saw through the results that it's technically insolvent, that its assets are, uh, are outstripped by its liabilities, that it's got a huge debt pile, that it lost 10 billion euros in the first six months of the year, that we still can't rely on previous year's financial results, that there was a, a significant overstatement of last year's results by Steinhoff under the leadership of Marcus Uester. And we're still waiting for reports from the likes of PwC and others as to what a going concern status might be in this particular business. Nobody with even the slightest modicum of, of common sense is going to put an offer in here, surely? Not yet? Well, I think that there is possibly an opportunity for the right kind of firm with uh, the, the appetite for what is going to be a very difficult situation. You know, you, you say it's technically insolvent, but uh, after writing off uh, over about 11 billion euros, so, you know, 170 billion rands of investors is written off, uh, it actually still does have some equity value left. There's uh, probably about 3 billion euros, or call it, call it about 50 billion rand of, of NAV on what are a set of very shaky accounts. I mean, that's uh, and that, and, the case. These and, are unaudited. But that's the problem is upon what do you base a 50 billion rand valuation in Steinhoff when there's nothing you can trust that came out of Steinhoff over at least the last three or four years that gives you any sort of sense of, of certainty? Yeah. Uh, it's very uncertain, very high risk. But... If there's 50 billion rands worth of assets there, and the company is now trading at a market cap of around 5 billion rand, you know you can see that there's a potential opportunity to uh, generate serious returns. But it would take uh, a, a very high risk appetite to try and pursue those. 
in a situation in which there is, as you say, massive uncertainty about the numbers, about the operating future of these businesses, and about litigation, liabilities to shareholders who are suing them and, and, and so on. I mean, in a Trump world of rising interest rates and and great deal of global uncertainty with trade wars and and that level of sort of populist politics that is dominating the world nowadays, in addition to the fact that people like Christo Visa want 59 billion rand out of this business that Steinhoff Africa retails at war with Techie Town's founders. I mean, all of this stuff. Anybody spring to mind who's got a touch of, uh, I don't know, too much midday sun um, and uh, is keen to come in and and put in a pitch? Uh, Well, uh, nobody that I know of, for sure. (laughs) There are uh, private equity firms that specialize in exactly this kind of disaster, you know, that that will go in and and find a company that just uh, has very dim prospects but does have some assets. and. You know, Steinhoff does still have assets. There are bricks and mortar that are worth something. Uh, and a firm that wanted that kind of uh, challenge, uh, there are a few out there. Largely American firms that tends to be an American game to take on that kind of risk uh, and bring in a big balance sheet and be ready for some very aggressive wars that you're going to have to have with uh, the company's creditors. Uh, but there are people who will give it a try. And these, of course, are the international businesses of Steinhoff. These are the businesses that listed in Frankfurt as opposed to the Steinhoff Africa retail businesses, which listed, right. um, which are the sort of the, it's the African footprint of Steinhoff, which is within Steinhoff Africa retail. Yeah, so Steinhoff Africa retail is really a, a kind of subsidiary of Steinhoff, and it's one of its actually best assets. You yeah. know, the, the accounting issues are really at Steinhoff Holdings level rather than at, at retail. Uh, and retail is actually a, a fairly valuable asset, and it's one that any buyer of the holding company uh, is going to look at uh, as, a, as a fairly positive reason to go to go into the business. But there, there are lots of other assets. You know, there's a uh, big American manufacturing company. There are several European retailers. Uh, there is uh, lots of a big property portfolio. So all of these things, if you examine them carefully, add up to uh, a reasonable number. Uh, the difficulty is the things that, that are really hard to anticipate at the moment is what kinds of skeletons are going to be sitting in closets. So you don't know, for instance, if the business has cut corners in its taxes in the past, uh, and you could suddenly find yourself with huge tax assessments and claims against you as well. Uh, you don't you don't know what kinds of promises have been broken to investors and suppliers and other kinds of lenders that could get you into trouble. Uh, and you don't know what kind of criminal liability the uh, former management might be facing and whether the company is going to fall, you know, be liable in any way for fines or any any of that sort of thing. So. So that brings to you a lot of uncertainty that's very hard to predict. But there are people who specialize in it. And this is all about a kind of risk calculation. So, you know, you think about the possible profits that are available and then you you discount it by the, the risk that they might never materialize or that some complete unknown might affect the whole valuation model. Uh, and then you make a judgment call. And there's some very big firms where, uh, you know, taking on a Steinhoff would just be a part of a portfolio, uh, uh, and a portfolio with some very risky assets, some of which will pay off and some of which won't.
Stuart Theobald, thank you. Time for The Undertakers to be brought in to save Steinle from itself. Financial analyst and chairman at Intellidex, Stuart Theobald, this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show. Business books. Well, one of the reasons you're getting another 26 cents a litre petrol price hike, taking it in Joburg to over 16 rand a litre, getting another 26 cents a litre petrol price hike this week is to make up not only for higher levels of taxes, a weakening rand, but also oil prices recently elevated courtesy of the OPEC oil cartel and its ability to manage just how much oil is pumped and available in the world at any one time. Aramco, is it Aramco or Marco? Aramco. Aramco. Arab. Aramco, Arabian-American oil company, one of the world's richest companies, 100% owned by the Saudi government, and also the subject of a book, that book being consumed voraciously, as it always does, uh, by Ian Mann, the managing director of Gateway's Business Consultants. Tell me, this is an unusual book for you to review for us, Ian Mann. I'll tell tell you why why you like it. I like it because if you ask people to think of the biggest companies in the world, market capitalization-wise, the sort of things that usually come to mind would be Apple, Amazon, I don't know. Um, some people have, and I've asked them to say Walmart. The fact of the matter is that Saudi Aramco is worth more than Apple, Amazon, and ExxonMobil put together twice. <laughs> They're, 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 it's an enormous – people are talking about north of $2 trillion this company's worth. And I think that its genesis is, is, is absolutely fascinating. The, the, um, they've done something incredibly well right from the very beginning. The, the Saudi Aramco company, now called Saudi Aramco, started off as the Arabian-American company. That's where they get the Aramco from. It was um, basically a concession that the, the king gave to the – to the uh, Amer- American group, mainly because I don't think he, he thought there was much oil there. And in fact, there didn't seem to be, certainly not in the beginning. This is the beginning of the 20th century. But I think if you go back and you think of how poor Saudi Arabia was in the, in the first decades of the 20th century, they estimate that they well, estimate, they record that the king of Saudi's wealth used to, used to be in coins and cash and other precious things because you'd give that out to your people to keep them quiet and keep the tribesmen on your side. But all of that fitted into a chest that the finance minister, Suleiman, reportedly kept in his family home. And when they moved, they would take the chests with them. There was, there was, the, there was the wealth of the nation. But they, 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 they took a huge gamble, or rather Americans took a huge gamble, because they, nobody found any oil in, in Saudi Arabia, the closest was a little bit in Bahrain. They had already discovered some oil in Iran in, in the 1900s, that BP, what's now called BP, had discovered that. But Saudi Arabia didn't seem to do anything. And they, it, it was so bad that the king actually said to the engineers and the, and the, and the uh, geologists, he said, when you're surveying this area, um, if you do come across any water, um, please let us know because <laughs> that stuff is really useful to us, not this other thing. <laughs> and literally it took um, it, it literally took several years and, and ten million dollars ten million dollars in those days was a lot of money um, ten million dollars and several years later that they found the first bit of, of commercially uh, commercially viable oil in, in Saudi Arabia on the eastern side of the, of the country and they started producing in the 1940s uh, about twenty thousand barrels a day which twenty thousand uh, barrels a day are Small, uh, it goes barely nowhere. No. Yeah, but at least it was something. Mm, sure. And then they started. They started building it up, and they, 
it was a huge gamble. I think ever ever decided to to go that far, most people I think would have given up after ten million dollars and five or ten years of finding nothing at all. But they did, and they kept at it. And fortunately, that they did because by the 1947 already they were pumping out twenty thousand barrels a day, and the rest is just history. It's amazing, isn't it, how we make these blanket assumptions about the state of the world and the way in which the world operates. And, of course, Saudi Arabia's got oil. It's always had oil. But it took an enormous amount of capital and risk and risk appetite in order to set up the Saudi Aramco. Absolutely. And the most important thing was that it wasn't called Saudi Aramco until very recently. It was always called Aramco. Now, what they did, which I think they've done something, they've done a lot of clever things, specifically around the oil. First and foremost was that they managed the economics of oil very well. If you, if you, you could shoot the price up, especially when you're the dominant player, and you can really make oil $200 a barrel, except that the people who are going to buy your oil can't sustain that, and even if they have to have the oil, you will trash their economies. So there's a subtle balance where you push them as far as they can, but not too far. And, and I think that they were very, very much aware of the economics of, of, of oil, and they played, the, they played their cards particularly cleverly so that they, they never wrecked the, 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 the economies in which they wanted to sell. I think that that was part of their genius. Yeah, and, the, and the genius also of the creation of OPEC, which as much as we resent it at the moment in particular with our petrol price going to 16 plus rand a litre from Wednesday, from midnight on Tuesday into Wednesday, um, OPEC has been you know, a very effective cartel in, in managing supply and demand in the oil market. Given the fact that it's such a diverse cartel, it is quite mm. remarkable. Um, Saudi Arabia used to be like the swing in that, and sort of like balancing it all. I think that they've pretty much pulled out of that now. But the interesting part is how they've 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 changed. You know, the, when they were, when they thought that all they could do was just produce um, oil, then they'd probably be like everybody. They're not the largest oil producer. They don't have the largest reserves in the world. They happens to be Venezuela. And you might ask yourself, well, why isn't Venezuela as <laughs> rich as Saudi Arabia? And that's the important point of the book. Yeah. The important point is that they manage the stuff incredibly well. Uh, just take one one issue. I think this puts uh, puts the f- finger on it. Almost everybody who had any oil has been pressurized to nationalize it. Everybody around Mexico nationalized theirs in 1917. Um, the oil industry in Iran was nationalized in 1934. NASA nationalized the Suez Canal. Iraq, Iran, Libya, absolutely everybody nationalized. And they all fared very, very poorly. The one thing that the Saudis did was they, they had given the Americans uh, a concession. And they said, we don't want the Americans to go away. We don't want them to go, to go away, for, obviously, because it's a nice market, but they were bought anyway. We don't want them to go away because they're damn good business people and they really deeply understand the economics of oil, and we don't. And I think that they've, they've, they've been careful. The, the kings were always under various kings, always under a lot of pressure to nationalize the asset. They say, we're not nationalizing this stuff. They own it. They own half. We own half. We're in business together. And I think that the, at that time was simply called Aramco. What they'd done subsequent to that was they actually did buy it from the Americans. It was purchased, not taken. And the, the, nobody mentioned how much was paid for it, but they said it was a very amicable deal. And that's why they called it Saudi Aramco. They're also smart enough not to say, look, we need to have a really ethnic name for this Aramco thing since the Americans are out of it. Um, 
I do know of human beings who've been prepared to change the name of an iconic airport or even thought about it um, for other reasons, but they were not even prepared to change the name of Aramco, which is this company. And now, is there controversy around the plans for an IPO? They're on the verge of announcing an IPO, an initial public offering, a listing of Aramco. That is the, the intention. This is then the state making shares available to a global public, potentially. I don't know. I don't know how much is ever revealed in countries which are owned by one family. So it would be very, very difficult to even suggest whether this has got um, national national acceptance or doesn't have national acceptance. But uh, the, 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 it will go forward. They do need money. The, the oil price is they've built, up, they've built up enormous wealth. They've really spoiled their people. They've, they've invested in a lot of things. And I think that the company is so rich and so powerful that doing an, uh, an IPO isn't surprising at all. Bear in mind that they're not an oil producer. They are. If you think of oil, there's people who produce the oil, then you process, the, then you, then you process the oil, and then you on-sell the oil. They own every single part of that chain. They are sorry. They are invested with partners in every single part of that chain. They, they are the biggest petrochemical, one of the biggest petrochemical companies in the world, one of the richest companies in the world because they've believed in this partnership idea. So they brought the French in, they brought the Chinese and the Filipinos, the Japanese. Absolutely everybody is a partner with them on some part of this of this of this very very long chain, and I think that um, probably behind the, the IPO is the opportunity to enlist more people and more partners because they want the expertise that they don't have. They have the oil, but mm-hmm. they don't have the expertise, and that's been a genius. It strikes me as a very evocative book. It strikes me as a very colorful book in terms of if you're trying to understand the politics of oil in Saudi Arabia, which has got a a tough regime in charge. Um, The the guys, you don't don't trifle with them. Um, That it's an environment where you could easily go wrong. But, boy, you can learn a lot from a book like this. I think you really can. And the most, if there's any lesson you learn, it's that... The kings, the various kings of, of the country, have almost to a fault their work, odd, odd king or two, actually one that I can think of, where they didn't, he didn't actually care enough about, didn't care enough or didn't deeply understand enough the economic value of what they had and would have made mistakes. And I think that the, the, the fact is that they've constantly kept the, the kingdom, which means the people and, and, and the royalty, in mind and seen to that they maximize the economic, economic opportunities that they have with this SOE. And I think that that's, that's an important lesson for us. It's one of the world's biggest companies. It's certainly one of the world's most profitable companies. And it's a state-owned enterprise. Saudi Aramco going to its IPO, probably the biggest IPO in history. There's a brand new book all out about it. And it is called, in man? Saudi Inc. Saudi Inc. Sounds and, ominous. And it's written but, by Wald, W-A-L-D. Yeah, and um, it's written, the, the, the author is Wald. The book is called Saudi Inc. Ian Mann has uh, reviewed that book for us this evening. The fascinating insights into the world's, one of the world's biggest uh, um, sort of supply chain managers of the oil industry as petrol on Wednesday goes to 16 bucks a litre. The Money Show. Make Money Mondays. Make Money Monday special edition. Zwei Bala, musician, founder of TKZ. That's an awfully long time ago. It's been 21 years since TKZ burst onto the local music scene, 1997. And Zwei Bala today 
more of a gospel performer, producer, solo career going on. He was the first black pupil to be admitted to the Drakensberg Boys Choir School. Musical talents were recognized and he got into the Drakensberg Boys Choir. And he later got a master's certificate in orchestration for film and TV through Berkeley Music in Boston. And he joins us this evening. You were 11 in the 1980s when you first tried to get famous and you entered the Shell Road to fame. You got all the way to the semi-finals, which was pretty good, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, there was quite something in the 80s. Uh, trying to be like Michael Jackson was the end thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> was it the road to fame? Because there was quite a big gap between the Shell Road to fame and you know, you launching TKZ. There was a decade. What happened in that decade? Well, um, our Shell Road to fame back then was uh, our kind of idols. Um, you know, <clears throat> that was, you know, that was the talent competition that was going on every year and Shell would put in money into into this talent search competition. It was quite something. I mean, even uh, Rebecca, that's where she got her fame because she won Show Her to Fame in 1987. Sure. Um, and that year I managed to get up to this, I managed to get up to the finals with her. Um, so, uh, yeah, so and I guess yeah for me it was just being on the on the on the big stage, you know, flying up to Johannesburg and performing, you know, live television, you know, the whole country watching me as the youngest finalist and uh, you know, Maralo actually that's where it, you know yes. she used, she was the judge and good old Alex J was Alex oh, <laughs> was Alex a good the, old, oh, yeah. old Alex J. Oh yeah, when Alex. I see when I see Alex now I'm like, dude, I remember you with long hair, you're like Top shop pop vibes, you know. Yeah, you know, Alex, he's still very cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, he's cool. No, so he's Mara. Very cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was saying on, uh, don't know, I was chatting to you the other day. I see Mara, um, uh, I think at the Naledis, and I'm like, hey, Mara, you know, uh, yeah, I believe your, your book is doing really well. She says, you are in it. You are in it. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it, it's for all the good reasons, not to say I don't know how that kid uh, got, got uh, so so did so well. Ah, uh, no, no, no. It was really cool. So I mean, the, the following year, nineteen eighty-eight, uh, at thirteen, uh, there was a there was a, an opportunity uh, at uh, production by Des and Dawn Lindbergh in Johannesburg, yes. and they were looking for a child star. Um, well, not a child star, just a singing uh, kid who could be. The son to Maralo, who was a lead character, and then Henry Taylor, the guy who used to play Shaka yes. Zulu. Um, Late Henry Taylor. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So um, so Mara said to them, I don't know how the conversation went, but I imagine it's something like, "Yeah, there's this kid that was at Shell Road to Fame last year. It's really cool, you know." So they traced me down. I was already at the Drakensberg that year, and uh, yeah, and then I, you know, they brought me up to Johannesburg. I stayed in Houghton. Uh, yes, oh yes, overlooking Kilani and all those nice trees of Johannesburg. Yeah, and that was my first professional stage production, really, 1988. And the bug bit? Yeah, I mean, like, sure, getting paid 500, 500 rand a week was rather okay. I mean, what did that do to your school career? Did that harm your school career much? Because, I mean, even at the Drakensberg Boys Choir School, you had a, a very strict and rigorous academic regime. Yes, you know, um, you know, it's interesting you ask that, Bruce, because I think the culture of um, of the importance of learning for for us, you know, who 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 did the whole Bantu education thing. I know a mm. lot of people may agree with me. It was really about passing. You, they didn't really explain to you what this stuff really meant. It was about cramming, memorizing. I mean, we used to sing. 
history notes one and so plus on. One is <laughs> two. X two times no. two is two yo, two <laughs> times two is for yo. And others don't say the answer. They like the other rhythmic part at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where your music that's where that got your rhythms going. Uh, yeah. So, so, so I guess for me it was it was really about being about uh, becoming the star. You know, um, and and I remember some, uh, you know, some parents, uh, white parents, of course, they would be like, so now school, you're going to have to catch up and stuff. Yeah, everyone is talking about this catching up thing. Me, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know. So um, I guess school-wise, uh, you know, that whole thing never did much for me. But I think already I was, my mind was already set on what I wanted to do. It's just a pity that our, our, our education system yeah. uh, then and now doesn't yeah. quite uh, take care of... Uh, you know, kids like us and your Tiger Woodses and, you know. Yeah, um, but, but kids, yeah, kids are shortchanged constantly throughout, uh, throughout our history and continue to be shortchanged. Now, yeah. you were earning 500 bucks a week as a professional on stage with Marlo and Henry Taylor, Des and Dawn producing. Yeah. What were you doing with that 500 rand a week? Well, um, sure, during that run, which was at Standard Bank Arena, um, my father passed away during the run. So um, my mom was reminding me a couple of years ago that, uh, you know, that I buried my father. So when he passed mm-hmm. on, I kind of like took on the role of, you know, taking care of the family. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, everyone knows Loiso and Pelo, my brothers, and, you know, who I kind of like, I helped my mom take care of. Uh, and I also have an older sister as well. So the, 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 the responsibility for me kind of started then. Not that I knew much about money, but at least I knew I was making money. And, and I it was coming up. in. Yeah, it, it was, was coming, coming in. in. Yeah. yeah, it was coming in. Yeah. And there's no so social network. I mean, the, the social ground system now is, is poor enough as it is. But back then, it didn't uh, practically didn't exist. I mean, there was no there was no fallback. Somebody had to make the money. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was. I mean, I remember my, my, my grandmother uh, made a I mean, they were getting a half, I think it's a grant. But, uh, you know, it wasn't much. But, I mean, our grandparents would take care of the whole family of that thing. So, um, you know, just, yeah, it was tough. How, how old were you when your dad died? I was 13. 13. I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's a sharp growing up lesson. I mean, you, you're missing school to be this performer and you're at the, you're at the top of your game, you're having a blast, you're, you're, everything's going away, and then yeah. tragedy strikes. Did it undermine your, your career at that point at all? No, I think I was... Uh, I just always been a weird kid. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, because I wasn't doing things that was existing, you know. I mean, my mm. own father uh, um, was a, a great musician. I mean, like... I didn't not that I spent a lot of time with him, but people that know him. I remember coming across Bra uh Smart Ngonyama once and he mm. was meeting me and my brother for the first time during some holidays in PE. And we had never met him, but we always known hey the Smart Ngonyama is also from Utenheg, you know, like hometown people, so we'd never met each other. And he stopped us at the mall and he said, Boys, boys, it's so nice to see you. Not like, yeah, dad. And he's like, you know, let me tell you one thing. You boys can sing, but you will never sing like your father. So it. he had, <laughs> so he had. I mean, a, a reputation as a great singer, and I know how you know excited he was about music. But unfortunately, people like him could not make a living from what they were passionate about. So, uh, are there recordings of your dad or not? Unfortunately, not. I mean, there's uh, hardly even pictures. There's, you know, yeah. Um, yeah so, you know, we're just, uh, yeah, just disadvantaged in many of those things. So, yeah. so what I mean, there's many of of those people who just couldn't. You could either be. Uh, a teacher, which was 
quite a bit of work uh, or any other professional like you know nurse and so on or work at a bank otherwise uh, you just had to work at a factory and us who were close to the VW plant and other you know motor companies uh, in the area so I cannot imagine having to do that to earn a living instead of doing what I'm doing so what I could see um, in my head was like being like Michael Jackson and 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 you know which really was not reachable you know people used to think at me <laughs> look at me and think I'm crazy you know uh, but what I was seeing was so different I could see this dream and I just wanted it you know from that age. Did, did your sister go into music as well because it's unusual for one family to produce three stars musical stars did your, your <laughs> sister also dabble in music? Well I think what many people don't know is that I actually started off singing with my sister Oh. Uh, because the age difference between me and her is closer than between me and Loiso, which is almost five years. And um, when you're like I, Janet and Michael, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> except that, except that uh, my sister would be Michael in this case. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what is my father when my folks were still together before they before they first divorced, and then my dad passed away a few years later. Um, by the way, he was only thirty nine when he passed on. Yeah, so, uh, but when we're still, you know, just us, I think Loiso, yeah, when Loiso was really little, um, my dad at the Bala Quartet, so he was on bass, my mom was on tenor because my voice hadn't broken, I was on alto, and my sister was on soprano. Even when we entered Cheryl to Fame in 1986, I was singing with my sister. So the first time I came to Johannesburg, first time on television, it was these two kids, you know, they are these two kids. Uh, so by the time Loiso came through, he just came into a singing family, and then Pelo was the. You made it surprise. easy. You, you made it easy for them, didn't you? Uh, well, you? You made them. You, you created them. You, <laughs> you tell, you, you did you it. tell you them did it that <laughs> exactly. You did it all. My guest this evening is Zwei Bala, the co-founder of TKZ. I wanted to find out more about gospel music, of course, and the meanings of it all, and what he's up to now. He's done. He's got a varied um, career on, in front of the camera. He, he does TV shows. He did pop stars, pop stars, East Africa as well. He would have learned a lot from that. But also, we're going to find out. You know, he used the, the money he was making with Des and Dawn Lindbergh, buried his dad, supported his family. At what point did the money become his own? We'll talk about that in just a second and how he deals with that money coming from such big responsibility as a youngster. Zwei Bala, more from him in a moment. The Money Show. Make Money Mondays. Are you looking for great ideas on how to grow your wealth? The best investment decision you can make this year is to attend the Alan Gray Investment Summit taking place at the Cape Town Convention Centre on the 17th of July and the Santon Convention Centre on the 18th of July. Here with Alan Gray, Coronation, Perpetua, Prudential and Stan Libber investing in right now. Uh, what they have to say about cryptocurrencies, the property market and what's driving the market. I'm looking forward to finding that bit out. What is driving the market? To book your tickets, visit investmentsummit.co.za. Alan Gray is an authorized financial service provider. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. Make Money Mondays brought to you by Sunlum Private Wealth, your wealth, our craft. Zwei Bala, the co-founder of TKZ and uh, general musician, lovely guy, is our Make Money Monday special edition guest this evening. At what point did your money become your own? <laughs> I guess when I had uh, my first banking account, I guess. Which was? Um... What, what do you mean, first of all, by my money becoming my own? No, I mean, as a 13-year-old, you, you're sacrificing your money to help support the family and stuff. <laughs> At what point, I mean, have you ever had your oh, own man. money? It was, it was always had responsibilities oh, beyond man. yourself. To this day, to this day. Uh, you know, when, you know, there's this saying I heard from someone. They say, when you let 
uh, when you take responsible for someone, they will let you. Uh, so I guess, yeah, and also just the kind of person I am, there's always, when I'm making money, it's, I'm not thinking about myself. It's like, oh, cool, I can do this and that for so-and-so, you know. Uh, you know, I'm always dreaming about what I can do for, you know, the, the, the greater part of my family. Also because I guess I started seeing the world from a really young age, uh, traveling and doing all these things. I always just wanted my people to have that, you know. So to see the same things as me, you know, um, and experience the same and create opportunities. Like now I'm even thinking of, you know, uh, building schools and so on. So I guess, yeah, I'm just a very sharing person, you know. Well, when you say my people, how big is that sphere of my people? My people is, is the African people. But so I guess, big, uh, my people, but, that's a lot of people. <laughs> I guess, but there are obviously uh, dependents, um, you sure. know. Yeah, do we call it, you know, black tax uh, until, you know, we can all have our own homes and, you know, mm-hmm. as long as people are not... Uh, not quite getting the, the most out of circumstance, you know. Yep. Yeah. No, but but you feel that obligation very deeply. Absolutely, yeah. That's me at um, heart. And and that's I mean that means that requires you to have a high degree of commercial success because once you start helping out, you have almost a greater obligation to continue helping out because you yeah, can't I mean, yeah. help out and then stop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, look. It's been, um, I think, if I look at it now uh, from, you know, objectively, when I look at my life, even the biggest break, you know, for TKZ was out of me seeing that in, in the other two guys, Tukulo and Cabello. And, uh, you know, I was when we started off with the group at St. Stithians together, you know, in the boarding house. So, um, but later on after school, I was like, no, man, surely there's something we can do. But we used to hang together all the time. But I was teaching at Wurskul Ranberg. And uh, and singing cover songs uh, down here where there's uh, there at the beginning of Silent Hill, but before all that commotion was there every Friday night, and I would get paid four hundred rand, and we just and this is basically how I kept us going, you know, for us mm. to get to that point where we where we released our first hit. So it's been a part of the success has come from that because for me the value is not just in that um, uh, tangible money or what you get paid or in that price; it's in the greater value, you know, it's in the spin-offs. But but by by having the ability to earn some money and keep the group together, because so many groups, I think, probably break up ahead of their time simply because they can't afford to do what they love anymore, and that is to produce the music, to be the artist. Yeah, um, yeah, and for me, I guess where I, I, I used to spend my money, if there was money, then it's like, you know, buy this piece of equipment. So it was always on stuff that I loved doing, which was going to, 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 to bring back the cash anyway, you know, for us to make more music and then comes back and then we just carry on. What do you spend your money on? <laughs> other than other people, what, other for, than, you, um, for you, for you, what do you what, what do you spend your money on? Yeah, I think stuff that I really don't think about. Um, it's now these days, it's music software and uh, uh, little courses online, and uh, I just love learning. You know, that's not the question. Oh, you know oh, okay, 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 okay. What do you spend <laughs> your money on? Not what do you, what do you invest on to grow your business and to grow your career? No, these what do you, the, yeah, what do you, you waste know, these, money on? not as much as I used to waste money before. Really, I won't lie to you. I used to like buying my drinks, having a good time, throwing a party for it, and even if we out, I'm the one that's gonna pay for everyone. You know what I'm saying? That's it was on a, on a good time. Um, but these days, I don't know. Just like. Uh, Home improvement. There isn't much money to really, uh, you know, uh, work around. I mean, uh, splash around. You know, these days. Uh, but otherwise, I like uh, homely stuff and uh, maybe a good meal. I won't. I won't think twice about going out and really having a proper good time or a good holiday. 
No, but that's the, the, the luxury of doing well is being able to make those kinds of choices. When you, when you look at those, that, that free spending life, do you regret that free spending life? Do you wish that you got control of your money earlier? I mean, sure, we got into trouble. I don't know if you know anything about no, TKZ. I mean, I mean, for me, and people maybe need to know this, especially guys that are still studying off in the industry. Yeah, I mean, it was big news uh, uh, in 2005, 2006, that the taxman came after TKZ as individuals. Uh, and with, uh, with penalties and interest and so on, I alone was hit for close to $3 million. And um, and when I look back, it's fine. And now when I look back, because, you know, you have to do all the accounting. And it was, we're all charged with a civil case and a criminal case. Uh, so you have to now, I had to now go back to all my transactions, all the accounts that I've had and go through everything to try and prove to them. No, but not all the money that went through my accounts was, um, you know, uh, was just for me to spend because I, you know, also spend it on stuff that is actually business. So I had to prove that by going through all the transactions. And uh, and when I looked there, I'm like, geez, but I was doing this, when I come across some transactions, like, but I was doing this, uh, you know, to try and help so-and-so, but you have to pay tax for it, you know? So for me, it's like, now I'm very, I'm very thorough. I'm, I know detail. <laughs> like I know that I, I need to account for this. Like I, I said, that, that experience for me was so good because I know, uh, like when I spend money, I'm very clear about how to spend it because at the end of the day, I need to account for it. And I know that if I don't have the support docu- supporting documents with it, you know, I'm in more trouble. So I think that experience was a bit harsh, but it was a very, very good lesson. Probably the greatest lesson of my life. Um, do you invest money? Or you, you, you're clearly back, very much back on your feet and you, you've taken a new lease on life through your gospel music. And um, are, Do you have excess cash to spend, to invest nowadays? Not so much, honestly, not so much excess cash. Um, not, not the kind of investment I think, I think you, you're referring to. Um, no, but uh, t- 10 rand into Unitrust once a month. I mean, n- you know, no, not that kind of stuff. No, I'll think about it though, 10 rand to Unitrust. But, uh, well, I mean, maybe a bit more because that cost, <laughs> cost, cost you more than that to transfer it out the bank to the Unitrust company. Yeah, no, not at the moment. But I'm quite, I'm quite, uh, I'm quite clear about investments. That it's something that if I had the the spare cash, but also you know, going through a divorce right now and and oh. and and you know, it just takes a bit of a knock on your on your finances. But I mean, and 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 the divorce, uh, the process of divorce is financially crippling as well. It can That's, be that can is be this, this is the money show. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So that you know. So things kind of like have to. You know, in fact, I do. The only thing I guess. One major thing is that I try. That's and why say, you're not telling me anything, just in case your your ex's lawyers <laughs> listening and going, hey. And doesn't this help. Guy. It doesn't help to be a nice guy there. No. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess we are talking about money. So we talk. You know, I don't have that spare cash. Yeah, but yeah. It, and yeah, and it is tough. I mean, it's, again, it's about regrouping. I suppose you've regrouped before, and you've just Absolutely. got to get on. But I, I really, but I must say, uh, in all this, I. I'm enjoying growing, you know. I'm enjoying learning things. I mean, I listen to your show almost religiously because, Aww. you know, yeah, because like I mean that I like uh, uh, learning about how people make things happen and how they apply things, you know, uh, how they apply their minds into making dreams like mine happen and theirs, you know. So, 
I'm going to stop talking now because you just said something nice. So I'm going to be all like warm and fuzzy. Um, uh, when you look at money and you, you, do you feel that it'll always be there, that you've always got capacity to make it? doesn't really matter what hits you from, from yes. one side or another. Yes, and uh, that very point, Bruce, has, is something that I've always had, even as a kid. I've always been like, I've never been worried about money. It always felt like I'll always have. In fact, I have less money because I'm making decisions to not make money. I mean, it's easy to just do a house track or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like everyone, but I like the big dreams. You know what I'm saying? And and being patient and making so that the, the impact of one thing is, you know, lasts me longer. So, yeah, I guess my relationship with money has always been kind of healthy for me, you know, personally. Mm. Um, when, and do you treat money seriously or can you be quite lackadaisical about money? I can be as a person. Uh, I can be, but I certainly do understand the value of money. I am. I don't like getting into debt. Um, I don't like <coughs> being in trouble. I don't like taking advances against royalties and all that kind of stuff. I'd rather be, 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 be you know, I'd rather be clean, you know. Mm. But yeah. you've, you've come to terms of adulting very well, it would seem. Yes, I mean, like I say, I had to grow up. I had to grow up at, uh, very early in my life, you know. So yeah. yeah, and now with kids, you can't you can't be like ooh ooh ooh. You know what I'm saying? You need to think <laughs> a bit ahead, you know. <laughs> Most certainly do. Yeah, Zwei, it's I mean, it's, it's an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for coming in and, and telling us your stories. I mean, what a, a fascinating set of stories you've told us, and some really important money lessons in there as well, and getting financial order, affairs in order, and ensuring the taxes are paid, and ensuring before you go and hand it all out to those that you want to help that there are huge responsibilities that come with earning a living, particularly in the world of the arts. Zwei Bala, co-founder of TKZ, musician nowadays, and uh, Zwei Bala, our guest on Make Money Monday's Personal Edition. Thanks for coming in. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. I do like his transparency, Zwei Bala, uh, telling the stories honestly. I, I, in my research, I didn't come across the uh, the tax issues, so uh, sometimes the internet can be more forgiving than at other times. But yeah, some stellar lessons in there for anybody, of course, uh, running businesses, small businesses, um, and getting uh, getting onto the the, the the track of making some money. That's it for the Money Show for this evening. Thank you so much for listening. Looking forward to be back with you and your company again tomorrow. Our Africa Business Report, all the big money stories from the day being told between 6 and 8. Right now, it is 8 o'clock. Good night.